Uh, hi, I'm Bruce White. Uh, with me is Amanda Kuno, and this is the first in our proposed uh, Mass University podcast series on open access. Uh, whether there's a second one in the series uh, depends on how successful this one is. Uh, but I just thought I'd introduce myself. I'm um, Massey's uh, Copyright and Open Access Advisor is my job title. I've been interested in scholarly publishing and open access uh, for a long time. Uh, I suppose uh, I measure my commitment to open access by the fact I've got um, 12 open access publications uh, uh all in Massey Research Online, uh, which is our, our the university's uh, open access repository. And Amanda, you tell us about yourself. Kia ora, Kato. Kia ora, Bruce. Um, I'm Amanda Kerno. I uh, manage the institutional repository Massey Research Online. Uh, I've done that for nearly nine, ten years now. Um, and that really sparked my interest in open access publishing. Um, I'm a big believer in sort of public funding. Um, um, works being publicly available but as I've kind of delved into the open access area it's it's a lot more complex than that sort of quite simple statement and um, I'm really excited today to look at uh, the beginnings of the sort of scientific publishing. Yeah that's good what we thought we'd do uh, is to take a deep dive into the history behind open access because I think most people understand that one of the drivers behind open access is the cost of journals. Uh, but an interesting question is, how did these these academic journals become so expensive? I had a couple of experiences uh, of this which surprised me. Well, I'll go right back to the start when I went to... Um, to New Zealand Library School in the 1970s, they were talking about what was called a serials crisis. Um, and I found that this is something that has followed me almost throughout my career. I'm just going to check this is still recording. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. Has it stopped? Yeah. It is? Still, it's still oh, going, yeah. Just, it just scares the bejesus out of me. So we'll cut all that out. Um, so... Uh, when I went to, to New Zealand Library School in the mid-1970s, a lot of talk about uh, the serials crisis, and I find that there's still talk about the serials crisis. So that was uh, over 40 years ago. So I'm really wondering if you can call something that goes on that long a crisis. Uh, it, it, might be, um, uh, it might just be something that's hard-baked into the system. Uh, the other thing that brought home to me about journal prices. I, I always knew academic journals were expensive, but I had first-hand experience of that in the mid-1990s. Um, and I'll tell you about a specific journal, which was an education journal. I, I'm not going to um, name and shame at this point, but from a well-known publisher. Uh, this journal had a, um, a subscription price of uh, 10000 New Zealand dollars, and Bear in mind, this was in 1995, and uh, we had uh, this. This was when the university was uh, moving to more than one campus. We had a copy of this a subscription to this journal on one campus, and there was a request uh, for a subscription on another campus not too far away. Um, when we looked at it, the the subscription price of the journal was ten thousand uh, dollars. So I had a look somewhere. I may have. Um, uh, gone online or looked in um, 
uh, inside Citation Index or something like that to see how much it published. 25 articles a year. Um, and on my spreadsheet, I did the maths. That was $400 an article. So <laughs> that's how I thought this must be wrong. You know, I've, I've, got, I've got the figures wrong. Um, uh, it's been wrongly reported. So I went and found the journal. It, it took some time to find because it's quite a small journal. It didn't take up too many boxes. And sure enough, there were four, there were four volumes, uh, sorry, four issues for the, the 1995 volume, uh, and, uh, each one of them had five or six articles, 25 articles, $400 an article. So, so yeah, so <laughs> I, 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 exactly. And I, I, I phoned somebody up and I said, Hey, what's, what's the do with this journal? I said, oh, yeah, it's a pretty good journal. They said, you know, uh, um, but at that stage, we went and said, no, 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 we're not going to buy a second copy, but $400 an article in those days. That's how expensive journals were. So we're going to look and see how we arrived at this situation. So we're going to do a, a, a brief history of the scholarly journal. So we, Bear we, with we, us. We've done a bit of uh, research here, haven't we? We've yeah. got some texts that we've kind of looked at. So uh, they'll be available with the podcast, won't yeah. they? So yep. people yep. can refer back to we'll them as well. We'll put the reading list up, yes. Yep. Exactly. It's been an interesting experience. How did you find reading those things? Um, I, I was fascinated. Um, I've been an academic librarian for 20 years, and I didn't know the background to you know how scientific publishing of journals came about. And I think it's actually required, should be required reading for academic librarians. It's yeah, well, and, and for, for everybody really... Uh, who's who's involved in academic publishing, uh, and and certainly people are interested in the in the open access movement because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's um uh, it's a bit hair raising at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so we're going to look at brief history of the scholarly journal. We're going to take a look at Elsevier, um, mm-hmm. uh, who everybody um, loved to hate. Um, <laughs> then we're going to. Um, Somebody who particularly interests me is Robert Maxwell. He's uh, a real character, isn't he? Robert Maxwell certainly is, yeah. So we are going to... Uh, everybody um, uh, loves a villain, and, and uh, Maxwell is both um, a hero and, and a villain of our story. Um, the other villain, uh, bear with us, um, uh, spoiler, is Adolf Hitler. Um, and then... Uh, who 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 is a, a first grade villain, and then we're going to look at at where things got to at the beginning of the electronic publishing movement um, in the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties. Okay, going right back, it's traditional with uh, with the scholarly journal to go right back to sixteen sixty 1660 or sixteen sixty one with mm-hmm. the philosophical transactions mm-hmm. of the Royal Society of London. Before that, uh, scientists communicated through books or through letters, sometimes mm, even, even letters, yeah, so letters just writing to one another. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, uh, things were published as letters. So Galileo's um, discoveries were, were published as one-off called letters and, and put out by um, somebody in Italy, a yep. publisher, I guess. <laughs> uh, but those, but, those, those were published as a book, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. kind of, yeah, almost like a pamphlet. Yeah, right. yeah. That's right. So not as part of a series. Then with the Philosophical Transactions, and that was the Royal Society of London. And you'd be pleased to know we'll take a big leap forward of 200 years um, through to the, through to the, the mid-1850s, through the 1850s, or even into the 19th century, um, where in Britain and America, scholarly societies were still the main uh, the main channels of, of science publishing. And I'm, I'm talking about science here uh, 
part, and we'll be talking about science throughout because science really has led led the way both with scholarly publishing and also with price increases. There was another tradition of sort of um, literary magazines, um, uh, things like the Edinburgh Review and so on, but we won't be we won't be talking about that. So those are kind of the big players at the moment, aren't they? Sort of yeah. the academies and the societies. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And Pub- that, publishers not so much up until... No, but there it begins to get interesting. Um, so in Britain and America, um, the scholarly societies... In Germany, from the from the mid nineteenth century, we began to get the rise of, of commercial publishing, and Germany was a major scientific and academic power from the mid nineteenth century right through to the Second World War, um, uh, and their publishing it was centered in Leipzig. Mm-hmm. Uh, they um, the publishers were separate um, from the scholarly societies, uh, and German was was really the main, one of the main, the two main languages of science, as I say, up until the Second World War. Uh, so that if, for example, you were active in physics or chemistry, uh, you would either need a reading knowledge of German or have access to somebody who could who could read German. Um, were there many translations happening at that time? Uh, I don't know. There, there, were probably, there probably were some, yeah. but but generally you read the stuff in, in the in the language yeah. in which it was written. Right. Much the same as English is the main language today. Right. It was it was then English and German. Um, this um, this continued on, um, cheerfully enough, uh, until and Germany continued on as a major scientific and industrial power um, through the First World War. Um, and then it was disrupted in the 1930s by the Nazis, um, and particularly uh, um, Jewish scholars. Um, uh, there were, as we know, an awful lot of um, Jewish Nobel Prize winners, and German scholars, uh, German scientists were particular. Jewish scientists were particularly active, and also the Leipzig um, publishing industry was largely. Um, Run, run by by Jewish Germans, German Jews, I guess. Um, then, then they then they were repressed. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's when they kind of went to um, Holland, wasn't it? They went to Holland. Yeah. So, so we, 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 we'll come shortly. to that. Yeah, yeah, we'll pick that up shortly. So that's what happened. And you know, if 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 you want if you want a, a warning tale about authoritarian government, um, you no longer need to be able to read, read German to follow physics and chemistry. And, and and Germany lost its place as a scientific powerhouse and has never really regained it. Um, the other thing about, about German science is that it was much more closely aligned to technology um, than, 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 than in Britain. Um, Brit- the British scientific community was a little bit purist, so there was a there was a disjunction between science and engineering that wasn't quite the same in Germany or in Russia. Is another interesting thing. Anyway, so we had we had this we had the um, so by the end of the Second World War, um, uh, Germany had continued doing scientific research right through the war, um, but then it pretty much came to an end. Um, uh, there. Um, 
that's a huge oversimplification, <laughs> but that dominance had finished. And I think we're focusing on Europe at the at this stage, yeah. even though um, we're not being kind of um, centric, Eurocentric, but it's actually quite similar. These things were happening all around the yeah. world, weren't they? Yeah, that's in right. A lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Europe, well, well, Germany in particular, but Europe was, was where science was happening. Um, America uh, also, but that was more of a post-World War II, World War Two thing, and also it, it came from um, uh, scientists leaving 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 Europe and travelling to America. So I know that after the the Second World War there was definitely an explosion, but before the first before the Second World War there definitely was a progression of um, development and professional science, wasn't there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and, and 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 academies. There were definitely oh, yeah. proliferation yeah. of academies and societies that, yep. and things. Yep, that's right. So, and then, then what happened after World War Two was that scientific research really exploded. You know, there were there were Britain. There were you know there was a Royal Commission in the forties, yeah. and they had their experience from the war yeah. was that you needed to be you know that science drove technology. Yeah. And I think there's been a, a great development in just with subtopics of science, haven't there? Yeah. Like um, nuclear physics, for example. Yeah. Well, that obviously yep. know, don't say literally, you know literally exploded, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and so there were a lot more developments of subtopics. So those there needed to be journals mm. to represent yeah. those fields. Absolutely, yes. The other thing that happened from from that the late nineteen forties through the fifties and sixties was the explosion of universities yes. and and university libraries. So academic publishing in the English speaking world. Um, you know, up up until the nineteen fifties, was really dominated by the scholarly societies, yeah. um, and it and generally you got the, the the journal was funded from the subscriptions of the members, yeah. um, and you got the journal by being a member of the scholarly society. So it was a bit of a closed thing, yes. uh, and also they exchanged, didn't they? The societies yeah. exchanged amongst themselves. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So and it wasn't wasn't hugely commercial. No. Yeah. No, that's right. So, so it was a kind of gentleman's game, and I used the sexist term. It was male dominated, yep. <laughs> um, uh, and really, also scholarly publishing ran on the same hierarchies as the scholarly society. So, the longer you'd been around, the more people you knew, the more likely your work was to get published. Mm-hmm. And progression was was kind of slow. It was like career progression. Yeah, I definitely picked that up. And that there might have been. Um, uh, perhaps a little prejudice from the societies that this work could actually be picked up by commercial interests. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yes. That that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after after the after the war, you got the big growth in universities um, in the UK um, and America, and and also with libraries. And libraries then kind of actually had money to spend on journals. So we're going to look now. Then at, at what this meant in terms of the um, the situation that we set today. So we're going to look at Elsevier and then and then at at at, um, at Robert Maxwell. So at the end of World War Two, Elsevier didn't publish any journals. They are the major publisher. Sorry, they relied on the encyclopedia, didn't That's they? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and it was um, the. Um, oh. Uh, what's the other one that was the co that they met? Um, North North um, North Holland. North Holland. That yep. they eventually merged with. Yep. But they they also had textbooks as um, yep. accounting bookkeeping textbooks, didn't yep. they? As yep. their kind of bread and butter. Yep. Yep. That's right. And even Elsevier published fiction. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Curiously enough. 
Um, but yeah, they were mainly a publisher of, of encyclopedias and so on. But uh, they began a relationship with with um, the the um, after 1933, mm-hmm. um, uh, people from Leipzig mm-hmm. uh, left Germany. Mm-hmm. So so these were, were were Jewish publishing staff brought their expertise. Um, through to to Amsterdam and began working with Elsevier on their encyclopedias and so on. So that started to come through. Um, this is really the birth of yeah. like commercial publishing, yeah. isn't it? it well, before, it happened before, yeah. but this is really kind of well. It was a movement of um, commercial journal publishing yep. from from Germany through to through to Holland. So you can kind of sort of yeah. see that there's this environment yeah. where you've got a huge explosion in scientific endeavour yeah. and activity. You've got uh, explosion in yeah. um, uh, different sciences and yeah. more professional scientists, yeah. and then you've got yeah. commercial publishers. Yeah, you, you've got it. Yeah, the, 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 I mean, one big um, gym publishing firm was Springer, for example, yeah. um, uh, who had been around for a long time publishing mm-hmm. scientific journals, and you know, a number of them didn't make it through the Holocaust, and mm-hmm. others of them, others of them, got through to. Um, uh, uh, got got through to Holland. We're working with with Elsevier and other publishers, and um, some of them, I think, got out to America. So there was that Elsevier. Then, with this expertise, published its first um, journal, Biochemica Biophysica Acta, in 1947, and that was their first one. And you know, that's that's in about eight parts now, and they've just rolled on mm-hmm. from there. But uh, we 